Hey everyone, this is Jason Probst, That Guy in Hutch, and you're listening to That Podcast in Hutch. Today I have with me Heidi Unruh, and she has a very uh, personal story that she's going to share with us. She uh, works in the community as a church and nonprofit consultant on community engagement. And if you've been around town very long at all, you've, you've probably met Heidi or her husband, Jim, and you know uh, what a great asset both of them are to our community. Heidi, thanks for being here today. It's a privilege. So for, I really want to thank you for sharing this story. And I know a lot of people in town know about this, but you have probably one of the most unfortunate situations a parent can encounter as it relates to COVID. Uh, your daughter, Elise, has what's known as long COVID. And we were talking just before we started recording and she's been sick for 10, almost 10 months now. Is that right? That's right. She tested positive for COVID on the 25th of November. So we spent Thanksgiving with her in quarantine and zoomed her into our Thanksgiving table. Uh, And she was cleared by the health department to go back to school in early December. Um, She had pretty much what a lot of people experience, kind of like a flu, Um, but she got better and she went back to school. She made it through first period and then she was walking to her next period class. She's a sophomore at Hutch High and she never made it to class. She got so fatigued, she literally could not take another step. So I called her, took her home and um, that was one of the last times that she really walked or was out on her own. So the when she was first diagnosed, symptoms that everyone hears about, shortness of breath, slight fever, things like that. And then then it looked like she was on the mend. And then just that, that deep fatigue set in. What, what did that look like after, after that happened and you brought her back home? We thought at first that it was, she just hadn't fully recovered, that she just needed more time to rest. Uh, so she went to bed and rested. But instead of getting better, she kept getting worse. Um, At the beginning, uh, she had terrible migraines, which is another common symptom um, of long COVID. And she had uh, the muscle pain, aches, uh, her skin hurt. So it it hurt to be touched. Um, At the beginning, she was able to move around um, and walk with help. But it didn't take long before... um, she really couldn't stand upright for long. She got progressively more dizzy and lightheaded anytime she tried to elevate. And so first she was able to sit up in bed and then she could kind of recline in bed. And now she is at the point, she's been at the point for months where she is only able to lie down in bed and elevation makes her dizzy, lightheaded. So as parents, what does this look like for you? I mean, how, how do you mm-hmm. provide care for a child, a 16-year-old, um, who's basically bedridden. Mm-hmm. Um, 16-year-olds typically want to be doing things, and they, you know, sick or not, still want to to engage with, you know, life and what's happening outside. How, how, how do you manage her care? Yeah, well, that was especially difficult uh, with Elise because she was so active. Uh, she was on the swim team. She was in dance. She was all over the place with her friends. She's just so vivacious and energetic. And uh, to see her just gradually, it is kind of like a, a balloon that has a pinprick. She's just losing energy and not able to enjoy the things that she used to enjoy. Um, 
<laughs> it's really, really painful as a parent to watch your child go through that. But it wasn't just the loss of activity. Uh, she's in pain. Um, she has chronic chest pain. It hurts to breathe. It hurts to move. Um, anytime we have to take her out of the house to go to an appointment, you know, getting her out of the house is just, she's in agony. Her symptoms have shifted over time. So at the beginning, as I said, she had headaches. We've gotten help for that. So her headaches have abated. Um, the, she used to be photosensitive, meaning that she couldn't tolerate any light in her room. So we always had to keep her room dark. Okay. Since she got her vaccine, when she turned, when she turned 16, um, she was able to get her vaccine. And we were so excited. Um, and so since getting the vaccine, uh, she's able to tolerate light better. She can tolerate touch. Um, so she's able to move around better on her bed. She had uh, a rash that has gotten better. So some things have gotten better, um, but other things have gotten worse. And so most debilitating has been um, the, the chest pain, the shortness of breath. Um, it hurts to breathe. She chronically feels like she's not getting enough air or oxygen in her system. Um, the, the fatigue, and that's more than just tiredness. Um, so she's it's not that she's sleepy, but her body just feels like it doesn't have any energy. Any exertion at all just wipes her out, um, you know, from just getting dressed uh, to doing her schoolwork because mental energy is also fatiguing. Um, so she needs to kind of pace herself and build in. I mean, even lying in bed, there's things you have to do throughout the day. So she has to pace herself. Um, she has uh, pain in, in her legs. Um, in her arms, so it, movement hurts. Um, that has that has gotten better over time, um, but anytime we have to move her or anytime she has to, you know, shift in positions in bed, it does it, it causes her some distress. Um, I think also debilitating is I mean, one of the most debilitating things is her inability to sit up. Uh, so she gets lightheaded and dizzy if she elevates for any period of time. So she did physical therapy early on, but it just became so painful, so debilitating. Um, it, you know, basically she was almost passing out. She'd come home from physical therapy and almost pass out. So we just decided that it was not worth it. And it's maddening not to know what is causing this. What would make it hurt to breathe? What would, what, what's going on in your body that, you know, just rolling over in bed makes you feel wiped out? If somebody's experiencing some of those long haul symptoms that, that you mentioned, um, how do they approach their doctor with that? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because I think a lot of people are experiencing symptoms and may not know what it is, or they might think, oh, this is just, I, I'm just not healing well. And they may not understand that this is a syndrome. This is, they're not alone in this. And so they should get checked out. It's really important to document uh, what symptoms you're experiencing. I would encourage them to, to look up um, support groups for long COVID online. There are a lot of different places um, to go to get information. The long COVID community is actually fairly well organized. And it's because physicians who are treating long, who are treating COVID then got long COVID and they were saying to themselves, hey, wait a minute, what's going on? Um, and so kind of spearheaded by people who had some voice in the system. And so it's a fairly organized movement. So get information, get connected with a group, 
tell people what's going on, tell your doctor what's going on, make sure that they understand that it is COVID related because insurance covers COVID related uh, symptoms differently than other kinds of health issues. And so um, learn how to advocate advocate for yourself with the health system. Um, Say, I need to see these specialists and then tell those specialists exactly what you need. The other thing I would say is find out what your health records say about you because in going through Elise's records, I discovered um, a good fair number of inaccuracies. And so if your health record is not accurate, you may not get the coverage correctly. Thank you. Her shortness of breath and the chest pain have continued unabated. And in fact, um, her breathing has deteriorated to the point that she's now on oxygen. Which you had a little difficulty <laughs> getting, right? Yes. Yeah, it was a struggle. I didn't realize at first, you asked how we cope with this. So there's an emotional coping. You know, you when you come in your house and you see a wheelchair by the front door, and it's a reminder um, that your daughter can't walk anymore. Um, when everything in her room has to be dust-free because she can't tolerate dust in the air. Um, when there's all these signs around of, of disability, that still, you know, every time I see the wheelchair, it still makes me twinge, a sense of loss. There's also been this learning journey that I've been on as a parent, how to fight for my child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I know so many parents in our community. I've talked with so many moms who have gone up against educational systems or uh, medical systems, legal systems, having to fight for their kids. And I've had to do that some also uh, as a parent of a child, with, another child with a disability. Um, I didn't realize how hard it was going to be to get Elise care. That has been such a struggle. And I didn't know what it took in me to become the kind of person who could knowledgeably fight for my daughter's care. So that's been a learning curve. Well, let, let's talk about that a little more. I, we, you, we had talked before that you've had some uh, denials from insurance and things like that. And just from knowing you, you're, you're not an aggressive person. You're not a fighter, so to speak, who's always ready for, for uh, some antagonism. Uh, you're, you're a peaceful person. And so this idea of having to fight and really have to fight to get yeah. what your daughter needs um, talk about that and some of the, some of the barriers that have been thrown up as you've tried to get appropriate care for her over the last 10 months. Well, by personality, I'm kind of a rule follower and I'm someone who respects authority. It's just sort of my nature. Um, so when I see a doctor, I expect that the doctor knows what they're talking about and that they're going to follow all the procedures and that those procedures are going to lead to a better outcome. But with COVID, that's a different story. I genuinely believe, Elise has seen so many doctors, and I I genuinely believe that all of them really want to help her. There is no one here with malice. Sure. There is no one here who is not doing their job uh, to the best of their ability. But our system is not set up to handle a new virus and its aftermath. It took us so long to discover even that there was such a thing as long COVID. I don't even know if the medical community would recognize long COVID as a condition had it not been for the people experiencing long COVID themselves organizing and speaking up and finding a platform, finding their voice and insisting that they be heard. Um, So 
that's really what it is. It's finding your voice and insisting that you be heard uh, and doing it in a way that, again, like you said, it's not my nature to put my dukes up. Um, but it is in my nature to say, this is my daughter. I love her. She's precious. We're going to do everything that we can do to find a way for her to get better. And I don't want to say that for everybody's children. Everybody's children are precious. One of the things that's always in the back of my mind is how privileged I am. I have education. Uh, I have um, a background in, in working with systems, so I understand the systemic dimensions of things. Um, I have a lot of contacts and connections. I have an incredible support system. We have just, I, I can say more about this later, but we have just received such an outpouring of love and support. But even, and I have time on my hands because I work at home yeah. uh, part-time, and my husband's job is flexible. So we are blessed with all these things, and yet, Navigating the system because it was such a nightmare. So, and I felt, I still feel so inadequate. And I think, Jim, you know, Jim and I talk about this and we say, if we were a single parent, what would we do? If we were somebody that didn't have um, a, a college education to understand, you know, to read brochures and, you know, de decipher all this medical information, what would we do? If we didn't have people in our corner rooting for us and, and encouraging us and picking us up when we just felt like we, didn't know what to do next, what would we do? And there are, I just, my heart goes out to all the people in our community and around the world who, who don't have a team the way that we have a team, um, because I don't know that anybody could make this any easier, but when you have a team behind you, it, it, make, it allows you to take the next step. Yeah, and I think that's a, a good point to make that there are a lot of people who have to navigate we're, we're talking about the medical system as it relates to covid right now but but in all systems they're they're complicated they're sometimes hard to understand and people who are you know they have to be at a job all day long and the office hours are closed by the time they get off and all these things that that people have to navigate like you said without a team that's so uh I think sometimes we don't give that appropriate weight that that it we tell people to do for themselves and take care of, of their own needs, but we structure things in such a way that it's sometimes very, very hard for people who who don't have some of the tools that we have to, to navigate that. It's very hard well. enough when you have the tools. Yeah. <laughs> I think especially so with COVID and long COVID, because again, these are new. Our mm -hmm. systems are reactive. So all the medical procedures, all the medical tests are designed to help us understand and treat conditions that already exist. Yes. There's, there's nothing to help us navigate things that are completely new. And yet we know from, if anything this past year has taught us, is that we have to be ready and adaptive to handle new things. Um, and I don't know if I want to include this podcast, but when you had Kale Dennison in here, she talked about um, wanting to... Um, talked about wanting to minimize unknowns mm -hmm. and our world is going to keep throwing us out unknowns and all of our systems are, are built around knowns. And not only that, they're built around things that are known to people who are not necessarily the people experiencing the struggles, Yes, things that are known to the professionals, things that are known to the caregivers. But there is a wisdom of those who have lived experience that is not heard in these systems. One of the most frustrating things to me this past week 
um, as we've been dealing with insurance and claims is that as a parent, I don't have standing with insurance. They only really talk to the report. You know, they tell me things, they, they send me notices, but they don't listen to me. And I know things. I know what my daughter needs and I know what it takes to get her there. And I just kept saying, just ask me somebody, let me, let me explain to you, let me make this case for what my daughter needs and why you should pay for it. Because it's stupid if you don't, because it's just gonna end up getting worse and that's not good for anybody and it's gonna be more expensive in the long run. And so um, I think we need to build, if I were dreaming <laughs> about how to build a better world, it would be to build systems that have input built in mm -hmm. and have adaptivity built in, but. We say that about everything, don't we? Yeah, but it's true. The system is built around working with uh, billers who are employed by a hospital or a clinic and doctors and the people involved in that system. And it's it, the current system doesn't allow for you to intervene necessarily. I mean, you can intervene, but it is kind of after the fact. You, you, you get a denial and then you can intervene and try to find a way to overturn that or to try to find some backdoor way to get the, the the care that your daughter needs, but as, as it is now, the system is built around the professional network and doesn't really include much of that. And how much time and energy do we spend trying to find those back doors, trying to convince people who are decision makers uh, to listen to the experience of people who are having the experiences? Um, here's one specific example relevant to my daughter's case. With long COVID, the, the way the virus attacks the body, it doesn't show up on your normal tests. So normally when someone has trouble breathing or chest pain, they do a chest uh, CT, they do an x-ray, they do EKG, all those things, and they all come back normal, which on the one hand is great. Yay, my test is normal, which we usually assume means, hey, you're, you're okay. <laughs> but my daughter is clearly not okay. But because the tests come back normal, the reaction is that, well, we don't know what's wrong with her and that we can't find out from the tests, so there's nothing more we can do. Mm -hmm. That's the end of the sentence. And another thing I found out is that insurance doesn't always cover investigative medicine, which means that they only cover treatments which have been demonstrated to be effective, which makes sense, right? I mean, if you pare back every regulation, there's a point at which to somebody it made sense in some situation. Sure. But in this situation, everything we're doing with COVID is investigative uh, because we have to react. Uh, we have to be, we have to not only react, we have to be generative, we have to try new things. And there's no room in the system for experimentation. Yeah, that's right. And that, I've heard that a lot with uh, a lot of systems, particularly healthcare, because it, there, there's, it, these, they build these channels and they don't like getting out of the channels, right? Is that a good way to say it? Oh, that's exactly it. Um, it that's another fact feature of our system is that it's, it's built to be uh, around a single disciplinary. It's built to be around specialists. Yes. So you have your cardiologists that look at the heart. You have your pulmonologists that look at the lungs. You have your neurologists that look at your nervous system, your brain activity. And in Elisa's situation, all those systems are affected, but they're affected in an integrative way it's affecting her whole body her whole system yes and so you cannot figure out what's going on with her just by looking at one piece of it at a time you need a multidisciplinary approach and you need communication channels 
where the different specialists talk to each other. And that is not what I have experienced with our system. And if I could be meta for another moment here, um, something else about systems that's become really apparent is how really good people doing really good things can still participate in a whacked up system. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, all the doctors, our, our doctor is wonderful and caring. All the specialists that we've seen, well, okay, not all of them. Most of the specialists we've seen have been wonderful and caring. Um, and, they, and they've all tried to help to the best of their knowledge. Um, and if I were to say, look at any one point in her care, I would say, again, most of the time, because we have experienced a few times where we're like, this was bad medicine. Mm -hmm. So I will say that. But most of the time we can say, yeah, this, this, they were trying to be helpful. But working from, as a parent, I, I felt like I had to be the one to pull all these strings together mm -hmm. to try to see the bigger picture and to make a way out of no way when each specialist led to a dead end. And again, I've heard that from other parents whose children, um, I think particularly in the mental health care system, mm -hmm. um, so often reach dead ends, so often have to be the one to rise above and, and kind of see the bigger picture. Um, but I would... The, the other thing I want to say is that Elise has a condition that doesn't have a stigma attached. And that's another way in which we've been privileged. So she has a disease that, I don't want to say it's popular, but, you know, it, it's in the news. People are sympathetic to us. Yeah. Um, they're, they're very compassionate that, that my daughter has had this horrific disease that has just robbed her of her energy and, and her health and her, her teen year, her, her you know, all of her, everything that a teenager should be experiencing, and then she's lying in a bed. Yeah. Um, but at least people are compassionate. And I think of other families that I know whose teenagers are also going through their own version of hell. But on top of it, they have to face the stigma and the judgment of the community because um, it's a mental health issue, or it's a substance abuse issue, or it's a self-harm issue. And those are, disease, those are diseases as well, and equally deserving of compassion. So as much as I can, I wanna be a voice for all moms, all parents who love their kids and are doing their best. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's talk about long COVID yeah. a little bit because it's not rare, but it's rarer than what we hear in the news. It's not, it's not the thing that's getting the top headlines. Um, but explain to me what long COVID is um, and a little more about how, uh, how prevalent it is. So we went from knowing, not even knowing that long COVID existed because COVID didn't exist <laughs> to um, now they have worldwide studies and they have some research money behind it at the national and global level. So now we know that around 25% of people with COVID have symptoms that last more than five weeks. Uh, we also know that one out of 10 people who is diagnosed with COVID and that doesn't die from it um, is still unwell 12 weeks after infection. And that's the point at which the government considers long COVID to be potentially a disability. So um, one out of four people who have COVID have some symptoms that persist. Mm -hmm. uh, but for 10% of people who have experienced COVID, and let me just say, you can be asymptomatic and still get long COVID. 
that's one point I really want to get across because uh, you can have a very mild case of COVID or not even know you're sick mm-hmm. and then start experiencing this cluster of symptoms and then trace it back to discover they have the ways of discovering that you actually did have COVID and maybe didn't even know it. So that changes, it should change the way we view COVID because it's not just about that, you know, two week period, you, you get COVID, you're really sick for two weeks and then you move on. Okay, well, don't even get me started <laughs> about the f- economic impact that has on families and the whole quarantining and, and uh, you, know, you know, people who have lost their jobs because they've had to take off work to care for a kid who's quarantined. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole other conversation. But putting all that aside, every time you, you have a, a somebody who is um, tested positive for COVID, they're at a 10% risk of getting long COVID. So what does that look like? Um, so long COVID is a cluster of symptoms. Because of the way that COVID, the virus attacks the body, it could show up in a whole range of ways. So they've identified um, almost 200 different symptoms that could be a manifestation of long COVID, but they, they kind of cluster together. Okay. So I'd like to read a list of the most common symptoms because I think there are people in our community who may be suffering from this and don't even realize that it's long COVID. So the most common symptoms are fatigue, headaches, brain fog, or memory loss, hair loss, breathing difficulties, loss of taste and smell, post-activity distress, meaning just complete exhaustion after activity, joint pain, cough, sweating, nausea, vomiting, chest pain, memory loss, and ringing in the ears. You know, I look down this list, and for Elise, it's just like, check, 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 check. Most of these are are things that she's experienced at some point. Um, And again, because this is maybe a systemic issue, it could be COVID attacks the autoimmune system, it attacks the autonomic system, and those things don't show up in typical um, scans. So... What this practically means is that people are feeling sick, they're feeling exhausted. So in my daughter's case, just getting dressed wipes her out. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you go to work? So if you are a single mom, single parent, or even if you're a two-parent household that depends on both your incomes to get by, and you are just so exhausted that you can barely get yourself out of bed, What's, what does that do to your family? COVID uh, affects, or at least is reported more often by women. And that's significant because women are less likely to be believed by doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more likely to be told that this is in your head or that this is hysteria, um, or it's just due to be dismissed as anxiety, all those things at least experienced as well. One of the things that gives me just a bit of a ray of hope Uh, with studies of long COVID is that they're discovering some similarities to some other conditions like chronic fatigue syndrome, where people just suddenly get this cluster of very debilitating symptoms and nobody can figure out what's going on or why they have it. And they're often written off and told it's just in your head or just rest and you'll recover. And so this, the the science of understanding what viruses do to your body, um, I think is taking a quantum leap. So there could be, there are, there are millions of people around the world who have been suffering in silence and stigma. And I think that long haul, as we understand it and we learn how to treat it, it could lift all boats. So that gives me a little bit of hope. Yeah, because there, 
it, there's so much research being done on this specific illness that it might translate into some treatments or better understanding of other illnesses, right? That is our hope, and that is why we are participating in a, a long-haul study, so that they can learn from my daughter's experience. We talked earlier about how I, you know Elise was on the swim team and very... In, talk to me a little bit about Elise before all this happened. Like, Just l- describe for us who, who she is, what she liked, uh, how you interacted with her on a daily basis. Oh, I have a huge smile on my face because I just love talking about Elise because she's just so amazing. Um, she is... Uh, she is just a dynamo of energy for making the world a better place. Uh, she has a very critical mind. Uh, she's very smart, very quick to see injustices, uh, very quick to come up with creative ideas that nobody's ever tried before. So besides the swim team and dance, uh, she's involved in theater. Um, she has a great imagination. Um, it, she's incredibly talented with her hands. And so that's been part of our story is Elise's crafting. So the one thing that she could do while she was in bed is is craft. Uh, so she knitted, she made a lot of embroidery thread bracelets, and uh, her latest thing has been crocheting, and she has just made so many amazing and beautiful objects. Um, you know, and she's still, um, she's still Elise. She's sick, but she's still, she's still Elise. She's still the one and only. She's some of the things that she's been making, she's been giving to people as kind of a thank you for their support and things yes. like that, right? Yeah, our church has just been so wonderfully supportive. I really don't know how we would have gotten through without them. And so um, as a thank you, Elise, we wrote thank you notes and attached uh, a little token that something uh, that Elise had made for each person in the congregation. Oh, that's so nice. She, so, she loves to share. Yes. And I've, I've, I mean, I've met her, you know, and I, she's just, she's just a great kid. And it's, I, I think anybody that knows you and knows her is, is pained by what they've seen over the last year uh, with her. Let me just say this though. Elise is taking all this in. Um, and like I said, she's still Elise. And One of the hard things has been sometimes she says, mom, I feel like I'm fading. I feel like I'm just not all here. And that's one of the things that long COVID does is it, it takes away your sense of being present. And so, um, you know, I want, I want a hundred percent of Elise in this world. <laughs> um, but I know that somewhere she's process she's processing all of this and being who she is this is going to someday be part of how she makes the world a better place, this experience. Talk to me about some of the conversations you have that, I mean, you kind of hit on it there, but there must be a lot of conversations about what's going on and what the process is and where you're going. Um, can you, can you share some of those conversations that you and her have? Well, on one level, it's about, when, when am I, you know, what's the next step in treatment? We have been so oriented into getting her into uh, um, a treatment program that is specific um, to long COVID. And so following the ups and downs of that journey, um, (laughs) the day that they delivered her oxygen after, like I said, a long struggle to get it, 
we literally just like, you know, she can't jump up and down, but like we were squealing. We were literally like pumping. <laughs> I was pumping my arms in the air and she was like waving her hands and we just did a little, you know, happy wiggle in the bed. And, and so, um, so we find things to, to mark the journey and make it. So every time um, we pass the 25th of the month, we celebrate her sick anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you make a kind of a holiday, like a family holiday out of yeah, it, right? right? So um, last month um, in August, it was her nine months. So we joked that, she, you know, she's had her COVID. It's been enough time that she's had a COVID baby <laughs> after nine months. So um, we find ways to get through each day. Yeah. But, I, but Elise, um, one of the things that she's passionate about is wanting to get this message out. She wanted me to have this interview. She wanted me to tell the story, um, you know, written about it post an essay online about her experience because she does not want others to go through what she's gone through. So she gets very angry and rightfully so as well do we, when uh, we hear people minimizing mask usage. Sometimes I think, what if somebody had worn a mask that day? Mm-hmm. And maybe my daughter wouldn't have gotten sick. Maybe would have, we would have had, you know, these 10 months back. So when you put on a mask, you never know whose life you're going to be saving. Um, and so combating some of the disinformation, um, encouraging people to realize that it's, it's not just a, a simple flu at stake, that it's a dis- disabling disease that you know, could last for months or who knows how long it's going to last. We don't know. In my heart, I fully believe that Lisa's it's going to get better. I have to believe that but we don't know what the future holds for her. We just don't want, we just want to see as many people protected against um, the risk of this happening as possible. And, and it's tough because I understand that life needs to go on. You know, I understand that there's always a balance between individual freedom and, um, you know, protecting the group versus doing what you want to do. And I understand that. And it, it's always going to be a juggling act, but, if you can do something small but significant to care for your neighbor and make the world a better place, do it. What, share with me some, you talk a little bit about your church has been very supportive and people in the community have been supportive. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Some of the things that people mm-hmm. have offered your family during this time? I'm not somebody who likes to ask for help. I'm somebody who likes to give help. <laughs> <laughs> so making the flip has been difficult for me, but um, fortunately I'm surrounded by people who make it very easy to be gracious about accepting help. And one of the things that early on God told me was if somebody offers to help, say yes. And so I have found myself saying yes to, to meals. People have brought over, um, at least has a, it's a special diet. And so they brought over treats that she can that are within her diet and they've brought over like crafting materials. We, I put out there that she wanted yarn and we just were deluged with the yarn and uh, <laughs> she's just made such wonderful things out of it. Um, and they have um, written us notes and cards. Um, Elisa's grandma sends her a card every week and we've got friends from church that send her cards and it's just so encouraging to know that you're not forgotten. You know, I have to say when this first started, I thought, you know, people are really nice now, but in a month or so, they're going to forget about us, but they haven't. And I've been so touched. That's so great. And, and let me say also, um, I've also gotten encouragement from people who have gone through struggles with their own children, mm-hmm. um, who have just said, hang in there, keep fighting, <laughs> don't give up. Uh, and I need to hear that from other moms. 
the other thing that's helped us get through our um, good. Lise has some really faithful friends who have been keep visiting and texting and uh, staying in touch with her and her animals. We would not have gotten through without her cuddly dog and her two cute guinea pigs and her fish rest in peace and all of our cats. They are her comfort animals. Yes, absolutely. Is there anything else specifically that Elise would want this community to know about her, um, the, the struggle that she's had, and kind of what's going on in your lives right now? Um, Elise also wants to get the message out that COVID is affecting kids. There's sort of this idea floating around that kids are at lesser risk of COVID, that it, it's mainly a disease that gets adults, but that's not true. COVID cases are increasing exponentially among children. So the American Academy of Pediatrics said that COVID cases increased 240% in the U.S. since last month. Um, that last week alone, there were 243,000 new cases just in one week. And the week before that, there were 250,000 new cases among kids. Um, the kids now make up um, almost a third of all cases that are reported nationwide. These kids are also getting long COVID. There's a study in England that found that one in seven kids with COVID have three or more long haul symptoms 15 weeks after testing positive. So if you're thinking about numbers, you're thinking one in seven kids who get COVID may, get, may end up sick long-term. Mm -hmm. They're missing school, they're missing activities, their, their brain, we don't know what's happening with their brain development. Um, so with an adult, you can say, well, you know, they'll get better. But with a kid, these kinds of traumatic incidents can, ha can have lasting effects their whole life. Yeah. Um, one thing that's also important to know that um, if you're vaccinated, you are half as likely to get long COVID if you happen to get a breakthrough sickness. So vaccines not only protect you from getting sick, they protect you more from getting long COVID afterward. You know, I think about, so I looked up how many cases of COVID there are in, in Reno County. So Reno County has had 10,146 cases. So if you do the math, um, and if we say that about 10% of people who get COVID have symptoms 12 weeks after infection, so that's over a thousand people in our community who you know, may not have the energy to get out of bed or may be experiencing shortness of breath just going up a flight of stairs mm -hmm. um, or who have chronic debilitating headaches. As a community, we have to understand that what affects one person, one family affects the larger system as well. Yeah, because particularly in a community this size, we're, we're very interconnected. Um, and, and kind of reliant on each other as employees, employers, neighbors, uh, all, the, all the things that we do in this community, we're all kind of tied, tied together. If you know of somebody who is going through an illness or a crisis in their family and you think, oh, I don't know what to say, or I, I don't know if they would take it the wrong way if I offer help, um, I would say, just go for it. <laughs> um, you know, I've gotten offers of help that we haven't needed um, but at the same time, just knowing that people care enough to offer means a lot. We, we are physical, social, emotional, spiritual beings. And so my daughter's body has been ravaged by this disease, 
but it has also taken a toll on our family emotionally and spiritually. And I think that knowing that people are supporting us, you know, kind of lifting us up in prayer and caring about what happens to us enables us to be better guardians of Elise's physical and mental health. Yeah, it's so important that, that I'm glad that you mentioned that because it's not just a physical, something like this mm-hmm. is not just physical. There's so many other elements that play into this, right? So ironically, in the middle of all of this, I was contracted to write a book, co-author book with my colleague, Joy Shakestead, called Real Connections. And so while we were isolating with uh, COVID and Elise got sick right after we started the book. Um, so we were quarantining um, and then dealing with Elise's health conditions and then um, having to kind of step back from the world in order to write about connections. And the theme of the book is how much relationships matter. And I have never experienced that more than this time of my life. So here I was writing about connections while being isolated yet at the same time feeling our family just lifted up by the sea of connections around us, support by the sea of support around us. That's amazing. And I think we don't talk about that nearly enough, right? The, the, the today's culture tends to uh, talk to us about being individuals, talks mm-hmm. to us about um, self-reliance and all those things, but there's a lot of information out there, both anecdotal and you know, data driven that can show us that connections being connected to a community, being connected to other people in some cases can make all the difference in the world. It can be literally life-giving. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you coming on today. I really appreciate you being so open with your family's story. And, uh, I'm glad that we have a relationship and, and, uh, wishing that, that you have a quick turnaround on this. It's not going to be quick. (laughs) That's actually been one of the struggles that I've had um, is people want to have a happy ending and knowing that this is, I believe that we're going to have a good outcome, but it is going to take a long time. They don't call it long COVID for nothing. And so it's sort of a slow simmering hope. Yeah. But at least there's still hope. Yes. Always. Thanks, Heidi. Thank you. Thank you for the conversation. And on Elisa's behalf, thank you to everyone uh, for the support and concern for our family. And you can return it by wearing masks and getting vaccinated and taking care of yourselves and other people. Thank you. So there are a couple events coming up that I want everyone to know about. The biggest event of this weekend, Saturday the 25th, will be the Southwest Bricktown Fiesta. And from the looks of it, this thing is going to have just about everything you can imagine. We're going to have music, we're going to have food trucks, we're going to have inflatable bouncy houses and things like that. And we're even going to have a mechanical bull. But check for that event. It'll be at the Southwest Bricktown Park, which is the newer park across the street from the Law Enforcement Center. And it looks like it's going to be a great time. And I'd encourage everyone to check that out. Coming up uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks after that, on the 2nd of October, we'll have the Rod Run that weekend. That too is going to have music and that'll feature the Hutch Symphony. And they're doing some really cool thing where they're blending the symphony 
with some uh, some of your favorite metal tunes and there'll be food and there's that's always a great time and the street is just lined with cars you'll want to make sure and check that out and on the weekend of october 10th family community theater will be putting on its production of arsenic and old lace that'll be a great show that you'll want to be sure to check out i'd like to thank a few of the people who've helped make that podcast and hutch possible my son mitchell probst wrote and recorded the music for the show jenny Brigette put together some great graphics and promotional art and Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. That podcast in Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast and Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyandhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyandhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Salt City Sound Production.